Oh, hey, AJ, how you doing? Doing all right, man. How are you? I'm great. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day to you as well. What are, are your you? plans for Valentine's Day, AJ? Working. Oh, fantastic. I'm sure your wife loves this. You know, she's put up with a lot already, so <laughs> what's one more day of work? <laughs> there you go. All right. We're going to be talking about our work this today <laughs> on this fine Valentine's Day, this Wednesday, this Valentine's Day that is a Wednesday. We're going to be talking about uh, some demands from the big U.S. technology companies that governments do more to combat spyware. We're also going to have Harley Geiger, tech policy expert on the show today, to talk about a new effort to try to provide a legal aid to hackers. That's coming up today on Safe Mode. Welcome to Safe Mode. I'm Elias Grohl, Senior Editor at CyberScoop. Every week we break down the most pressing issues in technology, provide you the knowledge and the tools to stay ahead of the latest threats, and take you behind the scenes of the biggest stories in cybersecurity. An attack is coming. It's about keeping us safe. He's just a disgruntled hacker. She's a super hacker. Stay alert. Stay safe. Stay safe. This is Safe Mode. I'm your host, Elias Grohl. Welcome to Safe Mode. I'm joined today by CyberScoop reporter AJ Vicenz. Hey, AJ. Hey, Elias. Hey, so we've both been writing a lot about spyware in the last couple of weeks, and there's been a very clear message from some of the big tech players in this space that governments need to do more to combat these firms. Tell us a bit about what we're hearing from the tech industry on spyware these days. Well, fresh this morning, uh, Meta, you know, the, the parent company of Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, uh, ubiquitous social media titan Meta, um, is out with their quarterly adversarial threat report. And the big chunk at the top focuses on some activities they've taken against um, eight spyware firms and their subsidiaries, uh, primarily in Europe, that are sort of doing what spyware firms do, right? Targeting vulnerable people and, and people unpopular in their countries and whatnot. And, you know, to your point, Meta is saying that more can be done to combat both the growth of these industries and also the way they go about doing what they do. So what is it that Meta is is asking governments to do? They they're singling out, I think, European authorities in particular that they want to see more from the Europeans. What do they want? Well, they're saying that Europe is in sort of a special sort of position to handle this. You know, it, if you compare it to some of the other parts of the world where data protection laws aren't as strong or stringent, in Europe, on the other hand, there are protection authorities that allow for uh, governments and regulators to get much more aggressive with companies, entities that violate data privacy and data protection rules. And so Meta is saying that Europe can do a lot more here uh, under the guise of privacy protections and whatnot to really address how these spyware firms are using sort of phony accounts and duplicitous methods to to target people in, in sort of innovative ways and, you know, they're asking the governments to step up. And when we think about commercial spyware companies, you know, the one that I think will, will come to mind for most listeners of this show will be NSO Group, right? Very well-known Israeli company. But the industry is really much bigger than, than NSO. And we've seen these technologies proliferate in a big way in the last couple of years. Uh, Google had a report out recently in which 
they too are calling for governments to do more to combat spyware. And they give us some data on um, how many firms they're tracking in this space. Tell us a bit about those those Google findings and, and how many firms they see as threats. Yeah, like you said, uh, Google had a report out uh, early February about what they see on their platforms. Uh, again, a massive platform. So they have kind of a, a, a holistic view on a big chunk of spyware activity. And they're saying they're tracking more than 40 different vendors. And so if you, you know, like you said, NSO group is the one that gets a lot of the headlines, but there are lots of different firms, there's subsidiaries, they have uh, companies that just do exploit development companies that do sort of broad based surveillance, those kinds of things. Um, in the, the report out today from Meta, they focus on eight companies, um, you know, companies, sci gate RCS Labs, IPS Intelligence, the NEG Group, uh, Veriston IT, True IT, Molitium Industries, and uh, a UAE-based firm called Protect Electronic Systems. And one thing they noted in their report, which I thought was interesting, was that this ecosystem, these companies sort of have this web of corporate, you know, structures to kind of obfuscate attribution and sort of stymie people who are tracking them across time. They might change names. They might reorganize. They have subsidiaries with innocuous names. They, they do this and that, but at the end of the day, there's uh, it's sort of a growing ecosystem that, is really concerning to, like you said, the, the major tech companies in the world, and they're trying to uh, bang the drum, get governments yeah. to do more. And one of the surprising things, I think, is a lot of these companies are, are based in Europe, which frankly blows my mind that the European authorities haven't gone after them. When you know some of these companies are are Irish, one of the big players is, is from North Macedonia. There's there's a lot of there's a lot of space here, I think, for the Europeans to be doing more. Yeah, I mean, t- today's report from Meta. Uh, going back to that report, there was uh, companies in Italy, uh, the subsidi- subsidiaries also in Italy. Uh, there's uh, Spain. You know, these are places where, you know, so often in our work, in our day-to-day, right, we're talking about entities and, you know, quite often cybercrime groups and, and whatnot in Russia, in China, in uh, places like that where there's not much hope that you're going to have some sort of a constructive conversation with government and regulatory bodies about dealing with it or addressing certain troubling behavior. But like you said, I mean, these are, these are countries where ostensibly progress can be made and rules can be brought to bear. There are strong institutions. Uh, There is a strong respect for the rule of law theoretically. And so, yeah, it's, it's kind of a, um, it's an opportunity, right? I mean, we, we deal so much with bad news, but this might be a, 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 a bit of hopefulness going forward. Mm. All right. Well, thanks for your great reporting on this, AJ. And we will certainly be back to talk about more about commercial spyware firms on a future episode. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Up next on Safe Mode, I'm joined by cybersecurity and tech policy expert Harley Geiger. When well-intentioned hackers break into computer systems, they'll often find themselves on the sharp end of a legal threat or even a prosecution. A new initiative called the Security Research Legal Defense Fund is trying to help white hat hackers get legal representation. And Harley Geiger joins the show to talk about that project. That's up next on Safe Mode. 
When a hacker is tinkering with a system, often they'll have a worry at the back of their mind. Is this going to land me in legal trouble? Whether you call it hacking or legitimate security research, getting computers to do things that they shouldn't is an activity that exists in a legal gray area. Sometimes hackers acting in good faith will find themselves at the other end of a cease and desist letter, a lawsuit, or even prosecution. A new initiative called the Security Research Legal Defense Fund is trying to make sure that white hat hackers who do find themselves in legal trouble have the representation they need. Harley Geiger is the founder of the Security Research Legal Defense Fund and is also a cybersecurity lawyer at Venable. Harley Geiger, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. Hello to all your listeners. Thanks for making the time. Uh, appreciate it. You're a veteran of uh, cybersecurity policy world. It's great to have you on the show. Um, I thought we might begin by stepping back a bit and asking you, what does the legal climate look like today for security researchers who are doing work in good faith? Today, security researchers or white hat hackers or ethical hackers, whatever you want to call them, um, are still facing uh, legal threats from organizations that they uh, perform security research on or disclose vulnerabilities to. However, despite that threat still being present, the environment as a whole has gotten a lot better for security researchers than it was five and certainly 10 years ago. There are now, uh, uh, there's now greater recognition in, in governments, uh, within companies, that good faith security research is overall a beneficial activity. And we are seeing more and more uh, legal protections being built into laws for security researchers, both in the United States as well as outside the United States. Uh, there is one recently that uh, came up in Europe. I, um, and so uh, researchers, I think, have greater uh, can expect greater understanding and uh, an acceptance of their activities than in the past, but are not completely out of the woods when it comes to liability yet. What are the most common types of legal threats that white hat hackers are, are facing today? What is the, what is the, what are the threats to them look like? In our experience, the large, the, the most significant threats are around the disclosure of vulnerabilities. Uh, as opposed to the research itself, uh, meaning the, the activities that yielded the discovery of the vulnerability. Also, what we are finding is that most threats are coming from uh, private organizations and in some cases, uh, uh, states, state governments. Mm -hmm. um, we do not see as much activity on the federal level as it, uh, when it comes to threatening good faith security researchers. Um, and I think that that is uh, also reflected in the increased protections for good faith security researchers in federal law. Uh, a couple of significant developments in the past three years or so were the Department of Justice issuing a charging policy on the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act that helps to protect ethical hackers. Uh, and also the Copyright Office uh, strengthening a uh, important protection for researchers under what's known as the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, Section 1201. I know it's a mouthful, but it's actually one of the more important hacking laws in the United States. So we've got pretty good protection for researchers from criminal prosecution under the CFAA and criminal and civil liability under Section 1201, where we don't have great protection for researchers 
in the United States are under state computer crime laws and uh, private liability. So when white hat hackers are disclosing a vulnerability and they're finding themselves in trouble, either from state governments or from the private companies in question, are these taking the shape of cease and desist letters? Are these prosecutions? How are these things playing out for, you know, on the front lines for white hat hackers who are, are finding and then disclosing vulnerabilities? So it varies. Um, but yes, m most of the time we're talking about a cease and desist letter and the threat of litigation, the threat of a lawsuit. And for ethical hackers who are trying to do the right thing, um, and especially if they're acting alone, they may not they may not want to undertake the expense and the effort of fighting the lawsuit threat. And so receiving the cease and desist letter is uh, often where uh, where the disclosure will stop, where the research will stop. And that is one reason why there are actually really aren't very good uh, uh, metrics or numbers about you know how often this really happens. You know a lot of it ends up being anecdotal, but you know cease and desist letters aren't really recorded anyplace. Um, when it comes to states, uh, it is the, the instances are fewer than uh, what we've seen from uh, private companies, uh, but when we've seen it in states, there's uh, usually it's an investigation. Um, but when it's true good faith security research. Uh, what we have seen is that uh, it, is, it tends not to go all the way through prosecution. That doesn't mean that they don't need a lawyer. That doesn't mean that they don't need um, some assistance in navigating that investigation. Um, but we haven't seen as many uh, researchers actually put into, into jail mm -hmm. as a result of good faith security research. Uh, and I'll give you an example, which uh, I think is a, is a good one. Uh, in the state of Missouri, uh, there was a reporter from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch that found a vulnerability in the State Department of Education website. Uh, this vulnerability exposed personal information of a lot of educators. Uh, they disclosed it to the Department of Education. The Department of Education said, thank you. Um, but then the governor of Missouri claimed that this was hacking mm. and would not let up that this was, in fact, a, a, a criminal act and put, you know, set an investigation uh, uh, in motion uh, against the against the journalists. Wonderful. Um, th <laughs> thankfully, the uh, the uh, invest the law enforcement entity, which happened to be the Missouri Highway Patrol, um, uh, <laughs> determined that uh, there was no uh, no criminal intent, uh, which is true because it's yeah. FA security research. Um, but Missouri law actually is broader than the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. And if they if they had wanted to, then they, they could have continued with the investigation. Thankfully, the law enforcement agency did the right thing and recognized this for what it was. Um, but state laws are, are actually quite broad and vague and can easily sweep in things like good faith security research. Interesting. Okay. So you're the founder of the Security Research Legal Defense Fund. You're working on cases like the one you just described. What's the fund trying to do? So the fund, the, the Security Research Legal Defense Fund, uh, helps, pro, helps fund legal representation or good faith security researchers or ethical hackers. Um, but only for their acts of good faith security research, right? So we're not going to support them in their, I'm sure, very legitimate grievances with their landlord, you know, or, mm -hmm. their, or their employer. Mm -hmm. um, but for good faith security research, uh, we will not provide direct legal representation, but we can help them pay their legal bills uh, for their for legal threats that they face as a result of their good faith security research. Um, and uh, so the the 
idea, the reason why we do this is we take it as uh, as as a uh, a principle that independent good faith security research, where individuals are trying to find vulnerabilities or even accidentally finding vulnerabilities in digital products and services and disclosing them to somebody who can fix it before a criminal gets a hold of that vulnerability is good for society. Mm -hmm. This benefits the public. Uh, so we, and we do not believe that uh, as, you know, as digital services proliferate throughout our lives, you know, more and more every day, that uh, internal teams or in, you know, dedicated security teams are going to find everything. Everything ships with vulnerabilities. Vulnerabilities are discovered all the time. And it's important to get those vulnerabilities to the organizations that can do something about it, regardless of where that disclosure is coming from. And so we think that it is important to protect individuals who are doing, trying to do the right thing and are doing so responsibly. When you look back at the recent history of legal cases involving security researchers, are there any examples of, you know, where you saw a lack of legal resources for hackers that kind of made you realize that, you know, this was something that, that needed to be addressed? There are. Um, there, I, some of it is anecdotal, and there are others that, that are out there um, on the public record. Um, but I, the, the idea actually came... Uh, after a uh, trusted colleague had told me that they tried to disclose a vulnerability to a, a critical infrastructure operator and that you know, they didn't they didn't disclose it to anybody else it came through in the course of their work and they were met with a, a threat of a lawsuit um, which uh, surprised them a great deal and they just dropped the matter um, and you know for, and I thought you know wouldn't it be great if there was if there was a way to help them, at least respond to the letter, you know, not necessarily, you know, fight them, you know, for millions of dollars, but at least, at least respond to the cease and desist letter so we can get to a stage where the vulnerability is seriously addressed. Um, so that was, that was one that's, I know, uh, quite anecdotal, but there are others. So, uh, there is a, uh, I, I don't necessarily want to name names, but there was a, a disclosure that had taken place, uh, with a, a non U S based drone company, um, where the researcher uh, believed that they were operating within the scope of a bug bounty and, uh, and disclosed a vulnerability and then was threatened with uh, potential litigation under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act and the DMCA for that disclosure. Um, but that researcher had a defense, which was this, this should have been within the scope of the bug bounty. Um, but they, not wanting to go through the whole process of arguing with this letter, um, wrote up the, their experience, provided documentation, and basically put it out on the internet. Um, but these types of actions are really suboptimal, right? I mean, ideally, uh, we can get to a place where we get past the cease and desist, where researchers are able to collaborate and, you know, and communicate with the organizations that should have an interest in patching vulnerabilities. Mm. Um, I think a lot of the time, these companies aren't really that interested in patching these vulnerabilities, right? And they'd rather just get their legal teams involved and send the kinds of angry letters that you describe, right? You'd be surprised, perhaps. Um, it is, I think companies more and more are interested in patching vulnerabilities. And uh, I think definitely I, I see many cases where uh, vulnerability disclosure is successful. What is important usually, what makes a big difference is getting that disclosure to the right team uh, mm -hmm. first. 
And this is where having a vulnerability disclosure policy is important. But essentially, if the disclosure goes first to lawyers uh, within the company, um, then the reaction is can be quite different than right. if it's going to a security team. Right. Um, but uh, but I think more and more we are seeing uh, companies, as I said, uh, uh, appreciate this kind of activity and do the right thing by by actually patching it. Um, so I, I I'm actually optimistic about where liability for good faith researchers are going, but we still do see uh, those threats. We, we see it uh, even even today. So if I'm a hacker, I'm in trouble, I'm coming to you for help, how much money could I expect to get to cover my legal bills? So the way that it works is if you uh, if, if you're if you're in trouble, then you know what we need is a summary of, of your facts. like what is your situation? Um, that will be presented to the defense fund board. Um, and we can talk about the governance structure of the defense fund in a moment. Uh, but the board will review uh, your, your situation to determine whether or not you have a financial need, uh, to determine whether or not what you are in trouble for is, in fact, good faith security research and mm. not something like extortion. We have no interest in helping extortionists. Um, and, uh, and also, you know, whether or not you have an attorney. So the, uh, the fund does not provide funds directly to the researcher, um, because this is directly to, uh, uh, for the purpose of legal representation, it's cleaner for us to provide that money directly to your attorney, uh, who then invoices us, you know, in response to an invoice uh, for their services. Uh, the amount, uh, it depends on what the need is. Mm. And, and we don't at this time have any, any fixed amount. Um, but I can, I can, you know, assure you that, you know, a, we're a relatively new organization, so we're not, you know, brimming with, uh, with tons of donations, but, uh, but B, um, at the front end of, uh, of, a, of a legal issue, it's not as expensive as, you know, being at trial or something like that. Right. I know at this time, you know, we're not, we're not equipped and would advise against going all the way to trial. Mm. You know, a lot of this, you can get, get more bang for your buck if you are um, uh, counseling somebody, you know, at, at the early stages. Yeah, responding to a cease and desist lawyer is not the right. most expensive thing in the world. Uh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Responding to cease and desists or, or even even before that, just uh, uh, getting getting counseling after receiving a a a. Um, a a threat via via email from the company, for example. Mm. Where does the funding for the project come from? So the funding for the project uh, comes from uh, grants, donations from uh, companies, uh, individuals, and uh, nonprofits. And so right now we have uh, seed funding from uh, Google Project Zero mm. uh, to get the get the defense fund started. Um, and I want to emphasize that. Uh, a, we're grateful for that. Uh, B, Google did not place any any sort of restrictions on the defense fund's activities. They did not try to control the activities of the defense fund. Um, the board is uh, is a standalone board, and the defense fund is an independent organization. Um, uh, and the money that will will be provided from Google uh, actually relates to. Uh, their internal bug hunters. So their their bug hunters, if they uh, perform security research and are eligible for a bounty, um, they are not really able to keep that because they work for Google. And so sometimes that bounty can be uh, provided to a charity. And the defense fund is, uh, as, as of recently, a 501c3 uh, charitable organization. 
And so we are in the among the options uh, for donating that money to the uh, um, you know, to charity. Mm. How do you handle potential conflict of interest? Let's say somebody comes to you with, um, you know, they're they're in legal trouble, maybe with a company that's providing funding to the project. How do you approach issues like that? Do you mind if I back up for just one moment? Yeah, and, sure. And and just uh, to complete the answer on on donation. So that that. Uh, uh, the donation from Google is is one source, um, but the defense fund uh, is also uh, receiving inquiries from individuals, um, and we're in talks with uh, other companies about doing uh, similar similar donation styles uh, for um, money that they would donate to charity. You know, making making us eligible to be an option. Um, and I, I emphasize that because you know we uh, don't want to have funding from a single source, um, and nor nor can we under IRS rules. And importantly, the defense fund is going to live or die uh, on community interest. Uh, the idea is this is for the security community. And if the security community wants to see it thrive, then it will depend on the generosity of the security community. Uh, IRS rules are such that uh, any nonprofit has to have a diversity of funding. Um, they have to have funds from the public. So I don't want folks to assume that um, just because you know we have have a you know a, a donation from uh, from Google uh, that uh, the defense fund uh, does not need to fundraise anymore. Um, in the end, we hope that this is something that the community will support because it benefits the public as well as the community. Uh, your question on conflicts of interest. So uh, right now we've tried quite hard to avoid in our governance structure having conflicts of interest. And uh, but we do have a process if a conflict should arise. So one way that we've tried to avoid having a conflict of interest is that the decisions on whether to fund or not fund a uh, legal representation for a security researcher are made entirely by the board. And uh, I, as the coordinator, am not on the board. Uh, as the coordinator, I work with the board and I you know, can give my, my opinion uh, for what it's worth. Um, but ultimately, it is up to our board members to choose. Uh, the board members are Kurt Opschel, uh, Amy Stepanovich, and Jim Dempsey, um, all of whom are uh, uh, stellar cybersecurity, legal, and policy experts. Uh, I have tremendous respect for all of them, and uh, they are fiercely independent, have excellent ethical track records, and conveniently, all work for non-commercial organizations. Um, so Filecoin Foundation, uh, Future Privacy Forum, and uh, Berkeley and Stanford, respectively. Mm. Uh, so they, uh, they are the ones who make the decisions. If a conflict should arise, then our policy, which is pretty standard, is, to, uh, is recusal. Um, so, you know, the uh, whoever has the conflict has to recuse themselves from uh, from voting, you know, and from from weighing in on the case. So far, that hasn't happened, um, but that is the policy. Great. OK, so you recently made your first grant. Uh, this was to a group known as Dragon Sector in Poland. I wonder if you might tell us a bit about their work and why you're providing funding to them. Yeah. So uh, Dragon Sector uh, is a, a small group of uh, professional uh, pen testers and white hat ethical security researchers. And, uh, and they reached out to the uh, Security Research Legal Defense Fund um, stating that they were, uh, that they anticipated legal threats because of research that they had just performed on uh, a train 
company's uh, trains. What they found was that the, the trains that they were uh, researching uh, had a backdoor in the software. Uh, that backdoor uh, presented uh, security issues as well as other issues. Um, but essentially it allowed the train company to disable the trains uh, when the trains entered certain geofenced areas like repair shops. Uh, so the idea, the, the accusation, the claim is that um, these trains were being remotely disabled, automatically disabled when they uh, enter an independent repair shop. Um, finding this, uh, this software uh, feature, which is also a vulnerability, um, and uh, disclosing it met with a legal threat uh, from the company. And uh, they were hoping for counseling on how to deal with that threat. Um, and uh, so we uh, brought this matter to the board in the process that I, that I described to you, uh, you know, got the, got the summary. Um, they, Dragon Sector, engaged a legal counsel and uh, the legal counsel um, was, you know, we, we, we ran them through the OFAC sanctions list uh, to make <laughs> sure that neither the, the organization nor the researchers nor the legal counsel were in, individuals under sanction. We didn't think they would be, but, you know, have to, have to check. Mm-hmm. And, um, and uh, we are, uh, have just, re- we, the, the board approved their grant uh, request, and we are uh, actually now in the midst of receiving their invoice for legal representation and are prepared to provide them with this grant. It's our first grant from the Security Research Legal Defense Fund, and it is, I think, a, a good case de- uh, demonstrating that security researchers making software uh, flaws public uh, still meet with legal threats. And we're not necessarily weighing in on other aspects of the case. Um, and again, not providing them legal defense, but want to see this case uh, not just get rolled because of a legal threat. You know, we'd like to see them at least get the legal counseling uh, that they that they deserve, given that they were trying to do the right thing. Mm. So we have a lot of listeners to the show who are in the cybersecurity community. You, you know, you mentioned you want this project to be one for and by the cybersecurity community. Wondering if you might close by, you know, what would be your message to the cybersecurity community on this? You know, how are ways that folks can get involved in this? Well, a couple things. First, I hope that the cybersecurity community uh, recognizes the uh, their their influence and their value. Uh, to digital security, but at the same time, don't over overstate it. Um, the defense fund intends to provide uh, assistance to research that is performed, you know, uh, in in good faith, not not for extortion and not doing unethical things like exfiltrating tons of data that's unnecessary or performing research in a manner that could potentially harm the public um, you know, or, or harm individuals. So I think responsible research is, is really helpful for uh, determining whether something qualifies under our guidelines. Um, for folks that want to get involved, I think there's, there's two aspects to it. Um, one, always uncomfortable, but Donations is is one, um, and we're not. I think the defense fund is not looking for much, um, but we do eventually have to show a diversity of of funding. And you know, in order to provide legal assistance to security researchers, there has to be a way of, you know, of of, of funding that. Mm-hmm. Um, second uh, is to uh, ensure that the community knows that the fund exists. Um, you know, the the fund is not really 
uh, is not really helpful if people don't know about it uh, and can't take advantage of it. Um, so, you know, we're still still getting the word out. Um, uh, security conferences have been uh, very supportive. And as we've uh, as we've talked with the community about it, there's a, a lot of interest and uh, support from the people that know. Um, but uh, we want to make sure that that ethical hacker out there who is uh, doesn't have the resources for uh, for a lawyer, but is finding a vulnerability and is afraid of getting rolled. Uh, by a cease and desist letter, that they know that this is out there to support them. Um, and also that it's out there to support uh, individuals who are acting uh, ethically and in the public interest. Great. Harley, thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to Safe Mode, a weekly podcast on cybersecurity and digital privacy brought to you by CyberScoop. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and a review and share it with your friends, your mom, your dad. Nobody wants to get hacked. To find out more information or to contact me, your host, please visit cyberscoop.com.